Welcome to the Chronically Courageous Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Howard. Since I was a child, I've had chronic pain, yet was told time and time again that it was all in my head. So I pushed through my symptoms and I built a successful career until I found myself crouched on the floor of my office, barely conscious. After finally getting a diagnosis, I had to learn how to embrace the life I've been given as fully and happily as possible. Now, it's my mission to help you do the same. Join my guests and I each week for inspiring stories and tips on navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Together, I believe we can move forward with courage, passion, and purpose. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the show. And I want to just take a minute to thank you all for supporting the podcast. It really, really means so much to me when I hear your feedback and see the beautiful reviews that you've left. And if you've been enjoying the show, please let me know by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. This really helps other people to find the show so that we can together help more people to feel supported in their journeys and to heal and live their best lives. This week, I have a special episode for Dysautonomia Awareness Month, which is in October. And you may be thinking, what the heck is dysautonomia? And that is the thought that I would have had up until 2015 when I received the diagnosis with it. So to start out, I'm just going to read you a definition from the Dysautonomia International website, which is a great resource, and I will definitely provide a link to it in the show notes so you can look at more details. So dysautonomia is an umbrella term used to describe several different medical conditions that cause a malfunction of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system controls the automatic functions of the body that we do not consciously think about, such as heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, dilation and constriction of the pupils of the eye, kidney function, and temperature control. People living with various forms of dysautonomia have trouble regulating these systems, which can result in lightheadedness, fainting, unstable blood pressure, abnormal heart rates, malnutrition, and in severe cases, death. Dysautonomia is not rare. Over 70 million people worldwide live with various forms of dysautonomia. People of any age, gender, or race can be impacted. There is no cure for any form of dysautonomia at this time. But Dysautonomia International is funding research to develop better treatments and hopefully someday a cure for each form of dysautonomia. Despite the high prevalence of dysautonomia, most patients take years to get diagnosed due to a lack of awareness amongst public and within the medical profession. And I can certainly relate to that. I was 42 years old when I got diagnosed And although my symptoms got progressively worse with age, I would say that I had symptoms of dysautonomia probably since before I was 10 years old. And I, you know, it's really been such a disabling part of my chronic illness journey, possibly the most disabling piece of it. 
and I've come a really, really long way, which I'm so grateful for. But I wanted to give you a sense of how dysautonomia has impacted my life. So I'm going to read you a social media post that I wrote two years ago. Here it goes. Are you feeling better yet? While I genuinely appreciate the concern behind this question, I feel like the truth will disappoint people, make them uncomfortable, or create the perception that I'm not invested enough in healing. It was exactly that way of thinking, though, that led me to wear a mask of feigned perfection for years. Today, I choose authenticity. So I'll tell you that while some days are better, not a day passes when my life isn't impacted by one or more of the potpourri of symptoms caused by dysautonomia. Since October is Dysautonomia Awareness Month, I feel compelled to share how this neurological condition has altered my life and the lives of many others. Most people take for granted their body's ability to regulate their heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, pupil dilation, body temperature, and more. Because I have dysautonomia, I can't rely upon my body to do these things properly. And let me tell you, it is no walk in the park. Think of the worst flu you've ever had. Then imagine you've just run a marathon. And just to make it interesting, imagine you haven't slept for 24 hours. I know it sounds extreme, but extreme is what it takes to slow this girl down, and it did. One of the hardest parts of this journey has been taming my type A personality that drove me to maintain a fast-paced corporate career by day and single motherhood by night, while managing to squeeze intense gym workouts in almost every day. All this while keeping up the facade of perfect health until I couldn't fake it anymore. Dysautonomia robbed me of my career and my independence. Even today, I continue to push myself beyond my limits, but not without consequence. I've been to the ER three times in the past five months, admittedly as a direct result of trying to live as I once did. Despite my strong will, there are days when I'm simply too weak, in too much pain, and too sick to go to the store, to prepare a meal, or to just get off the couch. I'm not seeking pity. I actually feel very put off by it. My goal is simply to increase understanding about a little-known condition so that others don't have to spend many years looking for a diagnosis as I and many others have. While I wouldn't wish dysautonomia on anyone, it hasn't all been negative. It has given me the gift of gratitude for things I was once moving too fast to notice. My priorities are more in order now than ever, and I continue to grow in my capacity to love, appreciate, and take notice of the beautiful people and experiences this world has to offer. I recently attended an event in celebration of Dysautonomia Awareness Month at Mayo Clinic Hospital. The experience was both validating and inspiring, but the prevailing message was that more education, research, and funding is needed if there is to be any hope for a cure. So that was my post that I wrote a couple of years ago, and I am in a better place today, but I still do have symptoms, and I still get very, very low blood pressure. I have a pacemaker because my heart rate was so low that I was bound to a wheelchair because I was so weak. And yeah, I mean, while things are a lot better today, I, I can't forget how this has impacted my life. 
but you know, it can be very different for different people. So today in honor of Dysautonomia Awareness Month, I selected three people to share their experiences with the condition. I actually had a fourth person scheduled to speak, but due to the severity of his symptoms and despite trying to reschedule the interview a couple of times, he was unable to join us. And although he wasn't well enough to be on the show, I really felt like it was important to share a message that I received from his wife, who's also his caretaker, about why he was unable to come on. She wrote to me, Daniel just took out his IV and is laying down for a little so he can get a nap in. There is a chance he's not going to feel up to doing the appointment. And sure enough, he wasn't. And then after we rescheduled, I heard from her again, and she said, today is no bueno for Daniel. His lungs are tight and his joints are sore, so he's still in bed. I don't share this to do anything other than show how so easily we can hear people and see people with dysautonomia, and it's a very invisible condition, so we may not recognize the extent to which they're struggling. So I felt it was really important to use Daniel to show how it can be so severe that having a simple conversation isn't even possible. Please help me to send lots of love and healing energy to Daniel and all of those who are still suffering from this potentially disabling condition. All right, so now I'd like to get into the interviews. First, you're going to hear from Marina Lombardi, and you remember Marina from a two-part episode that I put out on August 11th and the 18th. She is someone who I met at a conference for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a condition we share in common, and she's now become a good friend. Second, you will hear from Valerie Rose, who I met when she was acting as co-chair for my local Dysautonomia International Support Group. And I met her when I was relatively new to the diagnosis and she was just full of knowledge because she has had her diagnosis far longer than I have. So I thought she would be a great person to talk about her experience. And finally, you will hear from my niece, Samantha Breckner, who is 20 years old and recently received a diagnosis with both dysautonomia and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And before I play the interviews, I just want to make a quick disclaimer that any suggestions and stories that are shared here are unique to each person and are in no way medical advice. If you have dysautonomia or think you do, I will provide a link to the Dysautonomia International website where you can do further research and locate a medical professional to provide a proper clinical diagnosis and treatment if deemed necessary. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into those interviews. So how would you describe dysautonomia to people who don't know what it is? So uh, dysautonomia is basically the umbrella term that's used to describe multiple conditions that cause malfunction to the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is uh, the system in your brain body that controls all of the involuntary functions, all of those things that are on autopilot that you don't think about. So that would be things like your, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your temperature regulation, your uh, digestion, even things like your, your pupil dilation or constriction, things, your excretory function, so your bladder and kidney function, 
a lot of things. I mean, there, there are more than that, but that's just, that's sort of the general idea. Things that you don't think about are the things that tend to not work when you have dysautonomia. And it varies from person to person. Marina, what led you to your diagnosis? I started having symptoms. The first symptoms that I started having were these palpitations in, in my heart rate. And then more importantly, that, you know, was very disruptive was that I would have these issues changing positions. So if I was laying down and then I would sit up or if I was laying down and I would stand up, then I would black out, like visually just black out. I wouldn't pass out, but my vision would just go dark. And, you know, I didn't... It's not that I didn't think anything of it. I knew that that was likely not a very normal thing, but I just didn't have an explanation for it. It would go away. So I think my assumption was, okay, guess I'm just getting up too fast. And then I just modified my life. So when I would get up in the morning, instead of going directly from laying down to standing, I would sit first. And I would wait, and then I would stand up. And even when I knew I was going to black out, I just would stand there instead of immediately planning to walk away. So this went on for, for a little while. And then I did eventually undergo some testing at the Mayo Clinic at the same time that I got my EDS diagnosis, which was back in 2016. And it didn't show anything significant enough that they could give me a diagnosis of something like postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is under the umbrella of dysautonomia. The only thing that it showed was that my sweat production, which they, they use um, something called the QSART test, um, my sweat production was pretty diminished at that point in multiple locations of my body, which can be an indicator of certain types of dysautonomia. But again, it was dismissed because I didn't have these, I didn't check these other boxes off. And although I stopped my medications ahead of the testing as they had asked me to, um, there was one medication that I was on at the time that can affect, potentially affect the production of sweat. So they were just like, well, it's probably attributed to that medication mm. and nothing ever came of it. And then in the, in the past few years, my symptoms have greatly, greatly progressed and, you know, the palpitations got worse. I started having more fluctuation in my heart rate and my blood pressure, depending on the position that I was in. Um, my temperature regulation just was off the charts. I can't take showers that are hot because I was, you know, almost passing out in the shower. I can't take showers in the morning because I was almost, you know, passing out because my body just needs several hours to get itself together. My gastrointestinal system started to become more affected than it had been in the past. Um, you know, fatigue and brain fog became more of a problem than it had been in the past. Even so, all of these things that I never really attributed to dysautonomia started to become red flags again. And I was retested actually in January of this year. And that's when we started to um, really see the, the indicators. 
Hmm. And did they determine what type of dysautonomia you have at that point? <laughs> so I, <laughs> uh, I wish it was that easy. Um, some of the characteristics that I uh, present with, uh, or I guess the symptoms that I present with, are characteristic of what many people with EDS suffer from, which is POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is when typically it's when you, you stand up, you, the heart rate spikes and or the blood pressure tanks. So what was happening for me is that I was getting those um, symptoms, but I wasn't necessarily meeting the threshold for what they deem diagnostic. And that was causing a problem because if you don't meet the check boxes, you don't get the diagnosis. And even though it was affecting my life, and even though sometimes I'm, I actually, you know, at home because I monitor very closely and I was an EMT, so I know how to take my blood pressure the right way and all these different things. Like I was writing these things down, keeping good records. So I had proof on my end that sometimes I was meeting the marks. If it wasn't happening in the doctor's office at that exact moment in time, they were like, well, didn't happen. Sorry. Right. Um, but I had pretty severe QSART results. I had in several locations, like very, very, very diminished, almost non-existent sweat production. And in my foot, I had no sweat production. Mm. Um, so that indicates a certain degree of, of damage to some of the, the types of fibers and some of the other test results basically led them to diagnose me with autonomic small fiber neuropathy. And that, that was a catalyst then for my neurologist to do a, um, a, a skin punch biopsy to then see if the small fiber, the small fiber sensory neuropathy was maybe playing um, a role in all of this, which... I do have a, a low abnormal number um, when it comes to, to the test. So, mm -hmm. so it's sort of a mixed bag in terms of what exactly is going on with the autonomic function. Right. Which is yep. like the rest of me. I know. Very undefined, right? It's like, <laughs> yes. I don't like boxes. <laughs> you, you, know, you don't fit in any boxes. Forget I about don't. it. I don't like it's those so boxes. <laughs> no, it's funny because I can relate to the... Um, you know, not having like a, you know, a lot of people use POTS and dysautonomia synonymously, and it's not. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know, POTS is a, a more specific thing, and I was never diagnosed with POTS, but I, you know, I asked my doctor, okay, so what kind of dysautonomia do I have? And he said, oh, just kind of like a generalized idiopathic dysautonomia, which is, <laughs> which is so indicative of translation. So, I don't know. <laughs> right. But you do have it. So yeah. And I had the same thing with the QSART test. And then there was another, I, I had a bunch of the autonomic tests and there was one of the tests that there was another one that I also, you know, failed or passed or whatever you want to call it. I think it was like a breathing test or something also came back weird. And oh then, yeah. Course, the, um, they do a Valsalva maneuver mm -hmm. and then there's another component there's another one with the, with the breathing yeah i think the primary one though is the is the valsalva because you you're like breathing and it's sort of like pressure that because you're bearing it's like this bearing down feeling it's pretty gross mm -hmm. actually the, the feeling that you get um because it makes your head feel like you're gonna explode mm -hmm. yeah there was uh, nothing fun about that day it was like four hours oh no. of just test 
Marina, if you were to try to get someone who doesn't have dysautonomia to understand what it feels like, how would you describe it to them? I think that at times it feels like a complete loss of control of my body. And what's hard about it is that, at least in my, my experience, um, and, and I will reiterate that dysautonomia is very different for, for each person. There are people who are incredibly, incredibly disabled by this condition. They are bedbound for days, weeks, months at a time because their body just cannot handle even sitting upright. I always prefer to be lying on my back. My body is happiest in that position. I can, you know, my, my heart rate feels more like regulated and normal. Um, my blood pressure feels the same way. My head doesn't feel like it's like sort of spacey and floaty. It also doesn't feel like it's heavy and going to explode. But I know that I most days have the ability to get out of bed and at least sit at my desk and do work from home and get some things accomplished. But then in an instant, that can change. And that is where that loss of control happens. And there are days where I wake up and I know immediately that it's a bad day. And then there are days that I wake up and I think it's going to be an okay day. And halfway through the day, something changes and all of my plans go out the window. My work plans, my social plans, not that those exist anymore. Um, <laughs> my like any, any plans. I mean, even arguably, you know, routine doctor's appointment, whatever, mm -hmm. they don't exist anymore because my body controls and dictates what's going to happen next. And usually that means getting back into my bed and just sleeping or just being in my bed because I have to just be flat. So I would say that a loss of control is really what people could probably relate to most in terms of understanding what dysautonomia really feels like mm -hmm. to live with every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's that unpredictability. It's like, you don't know from one minute to the next. I used to joke, I, I would start singing, I feel the earth move under my feet. <laughs> yes. I like make jokes about that or like, I feel like I'm on a tilt-a-whirl or something and I'm not even on a ride. I'm just standing here doing absolutely nothing. And it's this feeling of, you know, I'm on this ride that I didn't ask to be on. Oh yeah. And I mean, I know sometimes I find myself testing limits. There isn't a cure for dysautonomia. So there isn't, you know, a magic medicine that you can just take and, you know, okay, bye dysautonomia. It's all good. There are medications and there are definitely treatment options that help with some of the symptoms from dysautonomia. And that also is sort of sketchy because as we are all individuals and our body chemistry is different, we're all on other medications that are different and we all have other comorbid conditions potentially. All of that has to play a role in whether a medication is going to uh, be effective and whether we're going to have side effects that make the medication intolerable, where the the 
rewards just simply do not outweigh the the risks or the the side effects. So it can be very complicated to try to deal with all of this. But I know, you know, some of the things that people often do that that have dysautonomia, it's lifestyle and or dietary changes because you're kind of left with not many other options. And when I say lifestyle changes, what I mean is when it started to get really tough for me to regulate my body temperature and positional changes became just a nightmare for me. One of the obvious things was, okay, showering is a huge problem. And typically I would get up in the morning and I would shower. Mm -hmm. And like many people, I would take a, not a hot shower, but a warmer shower. And that just wasn't happening. And the combination of steam and the the hot water and the standing upright and the early in the the morning time, I mean, all of it, it was just a recipe for disaster. I can think of one, one day in particular that I was so close to passing out, I could feel my eyes starting to roll back in my head Mm. and I knew it was going to be happening. And I can't remember if somebody was home or, and just like, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to scream for them or if nobody was home and that's what actually guided my fear the most. Mm. And I just remember reaching for the shower head or not the shower head, but the control on the faucet and quickly just like slamming it down to as cold as possible. And I was really like the last thing that I I remember because I was so out of it. And then the cold water rushed on me and kind of brought me back to at least some form of an existence that was uh, (laughs) conscious. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. And, and, you know, but that that could have just been so dangerous so quickly. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know that there are a lot of people with these issues who can relate to that experience. And also people who can relate in a way that it's gone the other direction for them. They didn't get there quick enough, right? Or they didn't have a chance to reach for that dial. And that, that's, that was a game changer for me. And I said, okay, we're not doing warm showers anymore. The door stays open in the bathroom to let the steam out. Yep. You know, morning showers are just not a thing anymore. It's, and it's annoying. And I still resent it a little bit because I want to shower when I want to shower. And that's a, right. a frustrating thing for me to have to, to grapple with that my choice is either be stubborn and shower when I want to shower and then feel awful afterwards or possibly pass out or listen to my body and get on board and do what I need to do and shower when my body is going to allow me to shower. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, you know, it's an interesting place that we're, we're put in um, to have to, to make those kinds of decisions on a regular basis. And that's just one example. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we're constantly throughout a day making those kinds of choices. Mm-hmm. We're kind of on high alert having to oh, uh, yeah. plan for any and every possibility, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'll be the first so, one to say, I do not always make the right choice. I, I understand. I think you're, you're a pusher like I am. It's like you want to you wanna do more than maybe your body wants you to do some days. So you do your very best and it sometimes works out and it sometimes doesn't work out so well. I know I've, yeah. I found myself sitting in some very strange places before that were like not a place where, you know, like in the middle of a sidewalk, for instance, or the middle of a store or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 
What would you say are like the most troubling symptoms of your dysautonomia? A year ago, I would have told you that it was the blacking out, the heart rate, the blood pressure, that kind of stuff. And so quickly that has changed because now I'm dealing with this total disruption of my gastrointestinal system. And that's just been, it's been frustrating because everybody is in agreement that that is likely the cause. It's just getting the diagnostic evidence is not always easy because oftentimes my my symptoms are very cyclical. Mm -hmm. Um, And once again, it's like if you go in for a test on a day that you happen to be operating at a better capacity than you were three days ago, then you're in a bit of a jam. And, you know, these doctors aren't always seeing their patients, how they live every single day, the agony, the nausea. So, you know, I lost a lot of weight very quickly. I almost completely stopped eating for a period of time uh, with the exception of not, I can't even say, you know, all liquids were okay because it was really just like brothy liquids and water and like nothing that was sort of thicker had the, the fat content that you really, the fat or the protein content that you would really need to put on weight or, or get your calories up. So I was in a really critical place. And then I kind of, I don't want to say that I stabilized, but I guess, you know, medically speaking, I I suppose I did stabilize to a point, but I never have been back to a place where I feel good. I mean, I don't enjoy eating. It's a chore. I'm full after a couple of bites. I'm nauseous all the time. My stomach is just like a compilation of little like lumpy bits um, where you can feel that the food is just doesn't move through my body the way that it should. And Mm -hmm. that's a motility issue. So that's like, that's a huge problem for me. And when you think that you've reached the place where, okay, this is what dysautonomia looks like for me. And now we're going to just work with it and move forward and, and deal with what we've got then out of nowhere, something else happens. And the more recent thing that I've been dealing with is that I have these bladder issues. And it's really just troubling because there are so many symptoms that overlap with other things. And it's so it it gets very hard to find people who you can work with who understand all of the things at play. Mm Ehlers-Danlos, dysautonomia, and and then on top of it, the sort of urology and potentially um, gynecological aspects that make up these issues potentially. Right. Yeah. I empathize with that big time as we discussed before we started recording. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> if you were to offer advice to other people that are grappling with dysautonomia, what would you say just for you specifically, not the advocate Marina, but the the human being Marina that has this issue, what have been the things that have been most effective for you, either medicinally or um, lifestyle changes or any, you know, any sort of things that you've done? I think that, you know, talking with other people in the community has been really, really helpful. 
because there's just, there's so much information out there. Mm-hmm. And I am, I am not the type of patient um, or the type of person who prefers to get medical information from random people as opposed to uh, documented scientific sources um, or, or doctors or things like that. But I also think that there is a lot of validity to the human experience. And that's something that a lot of the, the medical professionals that we see don't have. Um, they don't have the firsthand experience of, of living this. And I think that it's helpful, not just from a, a clinical and medical standpoint in pursuing a diagnosis or treatment options, but also from a mental health standpoint, because it can be quite maddening to live with such severe and and sometimes disabling symptoms and not have any like feedback, anything coming back at you that's, that's reassuring you that what you're experiencing is legitimate. I've also found it really helpful to, to listen to, to talks and, and to utilize resources through dysautonomia international. Yes. Some personal tips, I guess, and tricks in terms of my daily life. I drink a lot of water, which is important because we do need to stay hydrated. And there is a, a, or I guess, a medical correlation between hydration or dehydration and, you know, fainting or, you know, your blood pressure regulation, all of that stuff. But you can actually mess yourself up if you drink too much water when it's just water. Right. Um, because your body does need salt. Mm-hmm. So you will often see patients with dysautonomia, oftentimes patients that have POTS, drinking water that has salt in it, whether it's just straight up salt water or things like liquid IV. Um, there's another company called Scratch. And that can really help to improve people's quality of life because it helps to just balance things out. And also just, you know, eating, eating healthy and, and healthy is different for, for each person. I don't believe that that's a textbook definition. So I'm actually, I've been a vegetarian for actually just about two decades. Mm -hmm. So I've actually, for the first time been contemplating an all plant-based diet because I'm starting to notice that lactose seems to be, you know, quite triggering for my body. And I've also been able to identify some plant-based things, potentially nightshades, you know, some other things that are just increasing inflammation in my body, just not agreeing with me. You know, it's just like keeping a food diary or like, I know, and and I know these things, like they ask these things of us constantly, like document your symptoms, document your food reactions, your this, your that, like all these different things. But it can be really helpful if you're able to try to narrow down some of the things that you do in your life that make you feel better or worse, or the things that you put in your body that make you feel better or worse, because Mm -hmm. in the end, you're likely going to be the best source of assistance for yourself in in getting through this rather Mm -hmm. than expecting some, you know, miracle drug to just cure all of your, your worries. 
All right. So I have up next with me here, Valerie Rose. And I met Valerie through a dysautonomia support group. She was the co-chair of our local dysautonomia international support group here. She's got a lot of knowledge on this subject. She's been on her journey for about 13 years. And uh, I'm happy to have her here today. I just want to ask you a few questions about your experience with dysautonomia. First, if you were to describe dysautonomia to someone who doesn't know what it is and never had it, how would you, what would you say it feels like and what, what is it, how has it impacted you? I guess the easiest way I've often described it to people in my life is always have some level of like ranging from a mild cold to full-blown influenza. And so kind of your best days is like having a cold. You can you can go to work, you can do all the tasks that you need to do for the day, but in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, my head is pounding. Oh, my body's aching. Oh, I'm just, I'm really exhausted. And so you're kind of trudging through your tasks and you're getting them done, but in the back of your mind, you just have those nagging symptoms kind of weighing on you and you're almost waiting to check things off the list so you can kind of just go lay down and rest again. And then on your worst days, it's like having the full-blown flu and you just can't move no matter what. It, getting out of bed and doing those daily tasks just isn't even an option. So it's a moving target in that range. That's a good description. I can certainly relate. Yeah. So I know you got your diagnosis, I think you said about 13 years ago. So when you think back to that time, what was going on before that that led up to your diagnosis and how did you finally get that diagnosis? So mine was brought on by pregnancy. <laughs> um, ah. Yeah, yeah. So I had had my son in October and I really just did not feel well after having my son, just a, a bunch of different like fatigue and different symptoms like that. But I, it didn't really register with me. I mean, I was a new mom. I wasn't sleeping. I was exhausted. Well, come January, I was picking my son at school and I had my aunt outside of the elementary school. Um, and from there, it was really kind of a very intense, like a light switch being flipped. Um, I was in bed for a week and a half with dizziness and tachycardia and migraines and vomiting. Um, mm. Husband took me to the emergency room two different times during that time. And they said I was a tired new mom. <laughs> right. Typical. Um, and I just needed to go relax and go have a nap and maybe a cry and then move on with life. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So that was tough, but my symptoms never really disappeared from that point on. And hmm. really they just ultimately ended up progressing. Um, I couldn't stand up without blacking out. My arms and legs would go numb and my heart rate was through the roof. I was fainting, nausea. And it was really, um, just a really long, difficult, and frustrating journey. And I think it ultimately took me three years almost to be diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And wow. yeah. funny about it is in our spare time, my husband and I um, would Google my symptoms. And right. actually, we were the ones that decided that I either had Meniere's disease or POTS. Uh huh. He kind of did our own detective work and diagnosed me. And um, through Googling, like researching into dysautonomia, I found Dr. Goodman. And this was like in 
2009, 2010. And um, he didn't have very many patients then. So I sent him a direct email and I said, hey, this is what's going on with me. And he said, oh, send me your medical records and come see me. <laughs> nice. And for, and for the listeners, so Dr. Goodman, uh, Brent Goodman is a local doctor here in Phoenix, Arizona that works at the Mayo Clinic. And he is definitely one of the top specialists in town for dysautonomia. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And right at that time, I also found like a local cardiologist who was listening very well and told him that I thought maybe this is what was going on. And he did the tilt table test. So it was really just kind of a lot of hard work on, on our end. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a, that's such a common story for us all. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't ever seem like it's an easy snap of the fingers and yeah, the doctor knew right away what I had. Oh, absolutely not. So, and I mean, it had been years of going to doctors and then being frustrated and not going to doctors because you just can't take it anymore. And just, you know, all the ups and downs and twists and turns trying to get some answers to what's going on with you. Yes. The odyssey. So, Valerie, what kind of dysautonomia do you have? Because, you know, there's dysautonomia is such an umbrella term, but can you narrow it down a little bit for us? Right. So I actually have POTS. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And can you explain for the audience what that is? So POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And basically, it's just... uh, your body not keeping up with gravity (laughs) and your blood vessels don't constrict when you're standing up and you can't maintain your blood pressure and your heart rate goes up by more than 30 beats per minute within 10 minutes of standing. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the symptoms that have affected you most? So that honestly has been a moving target. And I think that's what's been most interesting about this journey. What were my most difficult symptoms in year three was not the same symptoms that were really messing with me in year five or year 10 or year seven. So it's a constant moving target. You know, in the beginning, I really had just the traditional POTS symptoms, the dizziness, the high heart rate, the low blood pressure, the fainting, the headaches and stuff like that. But as time has gone on, it's really been an evolving situation. You know, in the years following, there was a period of time where gastroparesis was my biggest issue. My Mm. digestive system just shut down. It was taking, when they did the smart pill test, it was 23 hours digestion time for anything I ate. And, you know, I weighed 95 pounds and we were talking about a tube. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was wild. But then, you know, thankfully, we found some treatments for that. And then, you know, the mast cell issue Mm -hmm. out of nowhere, and that became my biggest challenge. So it's just an ever evolving situation. Yes, I understand. I understand. You know, there's a lot of people that may be at the beginning of their journey or even, you know, into it, but still looking for solutions. What would you say have been some of the most effective things that you've found for managing your dysautonomia, managing your symptoms? Oh, gosh. Well, lifestyle changes have been huge. I would say that the lifestyle changes are probably the most difficult to accept. Um, Yeah. And take the longest to get your head and your heart around them. But mm-hmm. ultimately, they're probably the most effective, like learning your limitations 
and accepting them and living to them is really what has helped me learning to conserve my energy, not exposing myself to heat, not overdoing it, you know, wearing my compression, drinking my fluids, building in rest time. Those things um, are huge. I mean, along with, you know, the traditional treatments and the medications, but really that is the most difficult, but most worthwhile is just taking care of yourself. I have with me my beautiful and charming niece, Samantha Breckner, and she goes by Sam. Sam is a student at NAU, and she is very, very special to me, obviously. She's my niece, but she's 20 years old, and she is just full of love, and we we just have had so much in common throughout, and people even say we look alike, and... Unfortunately, she also has some things in common with me that I would prefer she doesn't, but she recently got a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome along with dysautonomia, which is why I invited her to be on this special episode. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about your journey to this point. I know, you know, it was something kind of you started sharing with me some of your symptoms a while back, and I know there, there was some resistance in the family about it, which understandably so. Nobody wants anybody in their family to hear that they have this, you know, this illness. But I think through our conversations, as as we both continue to learn the ways that we can manage it, you know, there are ways you can manage the symptoms. And I think, you know, it's great that we get to go through this together and learn and share tips and tricks and ideas. So I want to just give people an idea from your perspective of what it's like. So could you start by just explaining to people who don't know what dysautonomia is, how how you would describe it? Like, what is it? What is it like for you? Yeah. So generally, when a lot of people look at me, they don't think that there's anything wrong with me. Which I'd like to say there's nothing wrong with me as well. But um, I basically tell them that for me, I get some odd symptoms that makes my body feel super weak. And it just doesn't tolerate a lot of physical activities and certain foods very well. So that part is a little bit of a struggle. And to drive a little bit deeper into that, they'll be like, you know, what are some of the things you deal with? And, you know, I'll be like, well, first of all, I have cut a lot of foods out of my diet and it wasn't my choice, but I'm seeing a lot of improvement in my daily activities that I do. I'm having less stomach issues. I'm less dizzy and lightheaded on the daily. And I just feel more active and healthy in general. I've actually lost a lot of weight since I've changed my food diet. So I just feel healthy within myself as well. And I feel more confident in doing the things that I love again, rather than just being a bum on the couch, feeling like I don't want to get up to right, you know. Right. And and just to just to clarify, you're not a bum. You your body was your body was trying <laughs> to talk to you and tell you certain things. And you know, and sometimes that's what we need to, you know, to understand and to to get those messages through to us to slow down and to make those changes. So I think in some ways it can be a blessing that we have this, you know, this gift that our bodies are very intuitive and they're talking to us and And if we listen, we get rewarded for it, right? As you've seen. Yeah, most definitely. And I I feel super thankful that you've been here for me through this whole process because, gosh, 
I've definitely called you a few times when I was dealing with some traumatic stuff, but you know, if it weren't for you, I would have, I wouldn't have gotten the diagnosis that I have now as fast and I wouldn't know what's going on with me and how to fix it. So I'm super thank- thankful for you through this whole entire process oh, lot, as well. You're going to make me cry. You know, you're so special <laughs> to me. And as much as I didn't want you to have the diagnosis because I didn't want you to go through the pain of it the pain of going through all the physical symptoms and not knowing what's behind them is in my mind so much worse. And that, you know, not being validated or understood for so many years is really damaging. So I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm grateful that I was able to be there and, and help you get to that more quickly. Right. And it definitely was a struggle at first because, you know, it was a, it was an issue with whether I wanted to accept what was going on with my body or not. And I was telling you about these symptoms and um, it was kind of hard to express that to the family a little bit. So it was hard for a bit, but I stood my ground. I was like, you know what, you guys, (laughs) this is a legitimate issue and whether or not, you know, you want to help me out with it. Like I need a diagnosis and I need to know what's going on. Yeah. I'm really proud of you for doing that. I think it's going to make all the difference for you because now that you know, you can really start your healing journey. And it's like the first step toward healing is understanding what the problem is. If you don't know what the problem is, you can't possibly know how to heal it. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about what led up to your diagnosis, kind of like the symptoms you felt and and the whole ordeal with that? Right. So towards the end of the night, I started noticing um, about a year and a half ago that I would just feel so worn out very dizzy. I would get lightheaded anytime I stood up. I'd catch myself every single time I stood up. And then eventually I was at a point where I was like, okay, Sam, like squeeze all of your muscles in your body, shoot all of the blood to your brain so that you don't see stars when you stand up. And that's when I was kind of like, you know what, I'm pretty sick of this. So I got uh, a blood pressure monitor and I started monitoring that. I noticed that you know, at resting, I was okay. When I stood up, I was not. So I have this little technique where now I like roll over on my side, slowly sit up, squeeze all my muscles as I stand up. And it's been, it definitely helped when I went through that process. And then along with that, I was just, I have always had these weird things with my body. And you actually had sent me an article when you started noticing some of these things in me. And then I started having some issues with eating. So I would just feel super drained. My stomach, oh my gosh, the pain I would get in my stomach when eating. It's like my body just didn't want to process it. So definitely changing my um, food intake has helped me a lot. For everybody listening to the podcast, I am now gluten-free and vegan. Oh, I didn't even know you went gluten-free. Congratulations. That's a game changer. (laughs) Thank you. It's a big game changer. I sometimes, like, if I can't get out of it, I will eat gluten. My stomach doesn't really reward me for it. (laughs) It's not happy with me afterwards, but I will eat it on occasion if, you know, I'm out or it's kind of one of the only options, but I personally don't buy gluten products. Right. I understand. Now, Sam, do you, do you notice that when you eat gluten, it just affects your stomach or does it affect other things also? I feel super fatigued when I eat gluten. My body just feels like it's heavier, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) The reason I ask that is because sometimes people think, well, it's, 
you know, it's what you're eating. So it, it's just going to affect your stomach. But so many times the things that we put in our body, bodies affect more than just that. They affect for me too. When I eat gluten, I get extremely fatigued. Like all, like I can't get off the couch. I'm glued to the couch. The other thing is I will just ache. Everything in my body just hurts. So yeah, gluten for me is poison. I just, I cannot tolerate gluten at all. No, and it's not natural. We're not supposed to be eating it. Exactly. So Sam, moving on, if you were to try to get someone to understand what it feels like to live with dysautonomia, like let's say you ran into a friend that, you know, they have no idea what this is. Most people don't unless they have it or know somebody with it. Like if you were to visually kind of like put them in your body, how would you describe what it feels like? I think the best way to describe it is draining. It is just totally draining. It takes up a lot of my thoughts. It takes up part of my day. Even just taking the necessary precautions, that takes up time in order to feel okay. Making dinner takes a half hour longer than it used to, but it's worth it in the long run when I feel great at the end of dinner. But I think just at first I felt upset and annoyed. But I think that I have taken precautions and I've gotten used to it to feel stable on the daily. And, you know, I always tell myself, you know what, I would not be in the position I am in if I could not handle it. So, you know what, it, this would not be given to someone else if they couldn't handle it. So I'm strong and I'm powerful and I can get through this and, you know, this is me and it's okay. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love that you're you're so early on this journey and yet you've already kind of realized the gifts of it. And it it really is it's like if you can if you can deal with all this stuff and get through it, you can there's so much more you can do because it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy, but right. All, all, you know, the things that that we learn the most from and grow the most from are not the not the easy fun things. They're the things that like no. put us through the ringer, you know? So we have this opportunity to grow like nobody's business. Exactly. And that makes us who we are. And I'm proud of who I am. And you should be. You're amazing. You're amazing. (laughs) I love you so much. As are you. I love you. Thank you, sweetheart. (laughs) Got a love fest going on here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sam, can you talk a little bit about what are the symptoms that that most affect you? And we talked a little bit about this, but if you just kind of summarize the dysautonomia symptoms that affect you most. Yeah, so as I said earlier, there's definitely been some improvements in my in my symptoms since I started changing my lifestyle, but still I just I get dizzy a lot and lightheaded. Um, I think that's just something that I've accepted. I have my routine for getting up now and it's okay. Even I do the routine and you know, my vision will go black and I have to grab onto the wall or grab on the jack. And he's like, are you okay? I'm like, I, I'm lightheaded. And he's like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And I'll just take a second and it'll come back to me. I think it just takes my body a little while to a little longer than normal for the blood, the blood to kind of circulate from sitting to standing. Right. Because, you know, when you think about that, that is a lot on your body. I mean, you're carrying your whole entire body weight. So yeah, there is like that adjustment has to go through. And then fatigue, I'd say that, you know, towards the end of the day, after a really long day, um, after work, school, you know, me time, homework, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot and it can be really draining on my body. And 
you know, at the end of the night, I'd say around 6 p.m., like, I'm going to have some dinner. I'm going to watch a movie, <laughs> get all cozy and fed. I'm tired. I'm fatigued. Yeah. <laughs> and a good wrap up to my day, maybe a little bit meta of meditation um, to end up the day, to close up the day. So that's good. So, and a big one actually is my diet now. So you know, sometimes it's hard to monitor what you're eating. I'm so proud of the discipline that you've shown with like the dietary changes and lifestyle changes. And just amazing that, you know, at the age of 20, you've already, you're already like mastering so many of these things that, um, gosh, took me a long time to figure out. Thank you. Well, with your help, it's been a quick ride actually because Aww. I even remember when I was a kid I have this one specific memory you know the grandma grandpa you Sean mom um Carson I roll out to dinner at a Chinese restaurant I think and for the listeners um, that's all the family so <laughs> yes that is our family the, the close family <laughs> all those names um <laughs> yes and I remember you saying that you couldn't eat something because there was gluten in it. And I was so confused. I, I think I was probably 10 mm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I remember when you were going through this process and, you know, everyone was like, why, you know, you should be able to eat this. And it's just been like a prominent memory in mm. my head since then. I've been like, you know, I just remember everyone kind of making a big deal that you weren't going to eat gluten that night. And I was so confused. I was like, what's gluten? That's so funny. <laughs> But, you know, that's, I, I've actually told Jack that story because it stuck with me and that, that memory helped me a little bit and the, the food changed because I was like, you know, this helps Aunt Bonnie. So, you know what? It's probably going to help me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That was, that was my first go around with quitting gluten. And at that time, 10 years ago, it was so much harder than it is now. They didn't have the kind of products that they do now. And it was so limiting to be, you know, you couldn't just like go to the store and go gluten-free bread. It was really, really hard to find that stuff. So there were the options were like almost none. So I, I didn't keep it up for a while and I paid the price. And, you know, more recently the past few years, I just no gluten for this girl. So yeah. No, and I'm I'm really surprised with what the stores are now providing for gluten free mm-hmm. um, eaters and vegans as well. Like go into the grocery store and there's a sign on top of like one little freezer yeah. <laughs> section, and it says like plant based. So mm-hmm. that's my area. Yes. Love that area. Exactly, <laughs> it's my go to. Exactly. There's actually I don't know if they have one in Flagstaff, but there's a store here in Scottsdale called Natural Grocers. And I yes, my favorite store. Right, me too, me too. It's my. It's the (laughs) cheapest. It's the best. They carry Daya products, or I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Daya. Yeah. Um, They have like the vegan and gluten free pizza, and it was on sale the other day. Mm. So you can catch me at Natural Grocers all the time. Everything's organic. All they they have no non organic fruits and vegetables. So you don't even have to look and go. Okay, is this organic? Because that's the other thing that I've more recently changed is I, you know, I took that leap to, and I, there was always that cost prohibitive thing, but I'm like, you know what? I love myself enough that I'm going to spend a few extra dollars and maybe, you know, I'll cut back somewhere else if need be. But now I, I just eat organic fruits and veggies. So yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm in the process of doing that. I changed over about a week ago. Jack mm. was actually 
the person that convinced me to switch over to organic because I was like, you know what? I don't think I have that money. And then at the end of the day, you know what? I do have that extra 20 bucks a week mm-hmm. and I care about myself enough. So I just left Sprouts actually because um, it's right around the corner from me. I'm going to make fajitas for dinner. I got all natural veggies, mm, um, organic. Awesome. It's going to be so amazing. good. <laughs> yeah, I want to come over for dinner once the, once the pandemic's over. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Well, and I'll bring that up. So, so Sam is a COVID survivor too. In addition to all this other stuff, she just got over COVID. You want to tell us about that, what that was like? Yeah. So actually my boyfriend and I both got it. He was asymptomatic and I was very jealous of that, but also thankful because I wasn't allowed around, um, allowed to be around. So it was kind of nice. We were both positive and he could take care of me. He had symptoms, but yeah, I, I found out I was exposed. I got tested. It came back negative. I decided, you know what, I'm going to get another test because it can show up a little later. So I get tested. It's positive. The, the results came back in a day and I was feeling completely fine. I got my results back at 8 p.m. on a Saturday and then I woke up at like one in the morning that night, over 101 fever, my whole entire body, all my muscles hurt mm-hmm. behind my eyes. I had the worst headache mm-hmm. and for me, like the worst headache I can get is when it's behind my eyes because yeah. I just don't want to open them. Right. <gasps> Finally, I took some Tylenol and I, I got back to bed, but... I was, you know, stories that I hear from other people, they're generally, they have some mild symptoms for about three days and then they start feeling better. I was pretty bed rest for a week and a half, Mm -hmm. but once that week and a half was up, I was like, you know, I feel completely fine now. Um, I pushed through it. I stuck to my natural meds. Mm. Actually, that's something I take on the daily now. I take sea moss. It's, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Jack got me on board with it, but I think it's that there's 102, maybe it's 108 minerals in our body and sea moss contains 92 of them. Hmm. So it's really great for you. I take it every day. And then I also take some vegan women's multivitamins, Mm -hmm. um, which has great amounts of nutrients and vitamins that we need, especially if you don't eat meat. Um, I was taking vitamin D3 mm-hmm. uh, because there's been a lot of studies that D3 can help with COVID. And then on top of that, I was taking iron because I just could not get up. Right, <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Le- I had the couldn't taste in the beginning, couldn't smell in the mm. end. I, I had a minimal cough, lasted like two, three days, super stuffy in general, but was not the time of my life, but I got through it. And here we are now. <laughs> of course you did. You're, you're a yes. strong girl. You're a strong girl. So, Thank you. So Sam, kind of in closing, could you, if, you know, people are just at the beginning of their journey with dysautonomia, what advice would you give them? I would say that don't tell yourself it's the end of the world because it's really not, you know, and as hard as it is, to think of the positives all the time. It is a positive thing in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's a great growing experience and you know what? I feel better and healthier than I was even before I was experiencing symptoms. So I'm glad that this is happening to me and you know, the struggle is real, but it's, it's not as complicated as you think 
you know, you, you take the right precautions, you stay positive. And I know it's hard to, to push the negativity out. And, you know, I think for me, I had to learn to cope with the negativity before pushing it out because um, sometimes pushing the negativity out doesn't allow for growth. Mm -hmm. But I'd say, you know, learn to accept it, do what you can and realize that it's going to be okay. And there's always a support system. I mean, even I know you and I both, even if we didn't know the person, we would still be there for them. You know, they're not alone. And it's going to be okay. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. I love it. I love it. You're, you're just, you're really taking this thing on and I'm really, really proud of you. And you're right. It's like, you can't just, you know, sometimes you, you have to process it. You can't just say, oh, I'm just going to, you know, dismiss it or whatever. You need to kind of go through that grieving process, just like any other grieving process. You know, it's like that denial, acceptance, you know, sadness and the whole, you know, all the steps and eventually you come to a place of acceptance and you learn your ways to manage it and you're doing a beautiful job of that. And I'm extremely, extremely proud to call you my niece for so many reasons. And now I have another reason because you're the way you're handling this, like a superstar. Thank you. I learned from the best. You are the best. You are. You are. I love you, honey. I love you more. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I know it's, you know, it's vulnerable, but I also know from my experience that sharing the story is is really a great way to heal. And by giving purpose to your story, it's, um, it's also just, it, it makes it make sense in your life. You know, it, it gives it a reason and a cause and Um, And you're doing that because, you know, now we have this ability to help other people. And, you know, one of the gifts that I see is being able to help you through your process and, you know, getting your diagnosis and understanding it and that kind of thing. And, and now together we can help, uh, you know, so many other people through this podcast and other ways. Exactly. Yeah. Love to help others. Awesome. (laughs) Everyone deserves the help they need. That's right. And the support they need. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right, sweetheart. I love you. I love you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It means the world to me that you took your time and energy to listen to this entire episode of The Chronically Courageous. If you know others that would benefit from listening, please share it with them. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast player of choice. I welcome your feedback and questions. So please email me at bonnie at thechronicallycourageous.com. That's B-O-N-N-I at thechronicallycourageous.com. As always, I'm sending you so much love, happiness, and healing.